Well, hello, hello, and welcome to the iFormerX podcast, where we explore the evidence that informs ambulatory care pharmacy practice. This is Stuart Haynes, and I'm your host, so I get to pontificate and ask tough questions about patient care and drug therapy. Aspirin therapy is a cornerstone of treatment for patients with established cardiovascular disease, and we've known for nearly 50 years now that aspirin reduces the risk of recurrent cardiovascular events in patients following an MI and in those patients who have vascular stents placed. So you would think that after millions of patient years of experience using aspirin, there wouldn't be much controversy about when to use it, how to dose it, and when to stop it. But for nearly half a century, there's been an ongoing debate about the best dose of aspirin. Many of the original studies used 650 milligrams and 325 milligrams of aspirin, and more recent studies have favored using lower doses, 162 milligrams or 81 milligrams of aspirin. We know that lower doses of aspirin are associated with lower bleeding risk, but perhaps that's at the cost of reduced efficacy. And while European guidelines recommend the use of low-dose aspirin for the secondary prevention of vascular events, the American College of Cardiology, American Heart Association guidelines actually do not recommend a definitive dose. Hopefully, the recently published adaptable study will give us a clear answer. And here to review and discuss the adaptable study with me today are Dr. Ivy Wogu, and Dr. Megan Supple. Dr. Wogu is a PGY2 ambulatory care pharmacy practice resident at Moses Cone Memorial Hospital, and Dr. Supple is a clinical pharmacy specialist for Cone Health Medical Group in their heart care clinic. The Cone Health System is in Greensboro, North Carolina. Dr. Supple has been a frequent contributor to iFormerX and is a member of our advisory board, and I'm excited to welcome Dr. Wogu to the iFormerX family as a first-time contributor. Megan, Ivy, thanks for joining me today. It's great to be here. Thanks for having us. So, Megan, before we talk about the adaptable study, can you give us some brief historical context about the use of aspirin to prevent cardiovascular events? I know that the very first randomized control study to demonstrate the benefits of aspirin following a myocardial infarction was conducted by the Medical Research Council in the UK and was published in the British Medical Journal back in 1974. And, and they used five grains or 325 milligram dose of aspirin in that study. But at the time, many believed you needed at least 650 milligrams of aspirin to produce an adequate response. But over the last 50 years or so, there's been some landmark clinical trials. What kind of doses did they use? And why is there continued debate about what the most appropriate dose of aspirin should be? A lot of data through the years has actually come from the anti-thrombotic trialist collaboration. They've conducted multiple meta-analyses reviewing aspirin dosing across a lot of different trials. In 2002, one of their meta-analyses consisted of about 135,000 high-risk patients and found that patients who were taking antiplatelet therapy, most of whom were on aspirin, had a 25% lower risk of vascular events and non-fatal stroke. They found that the benefits in high-risk patients far outweighed the risks of bleeding, 
and they found that the aspirin doses ranging between 75 and 150 milligrams were at least as effective as higher doses of aspirin, but that doses less than 75 milligrams were less certain. A follow-up meta-analysis in 2009 showed similar benefits in secondary prevention trials that were both independent of age or sex. In 2004, the aspirin and carotid endarterectomy trial compared higher doses of aspirin, which are defined differently in most trials. And in this trial in particular, that was defined as a dose of 650 to 1300 milligrams of aspirin. That was compared with lower doses of aspirin, which they defined as 81 to 325 milligrams, and they found that the composite outcome of MI, stroke, or death within three months of carotid endarterectomy was significantly lower among patients taking 81 to 325 milligrams of aspirin a day than in patients on those higher doses. So we do know from trials like this that we don't need to be using 650 milligrams or higher of aspirin, but it's tough since a lot of trials considered a dose range of 81 to 325 milligrams to be a lower dose that we don't really have as much clarity on picking a specific dose within that range. And initially, larger doses of aspirin were thought to be needed, especially for older first-generation stents or for bare metal stents that had higher rates of stent thrombosis. But newer generation drug-eluting stents actually now have lower rates of stent thrombosis. So guidelines now recommend using that lower dose of 81 milligrams of aspirin, specifically for patients who are on dual antiplatelet therapy after they've had an ACS event in particular. And there are studies to back that up. Studies like the CURE trial showed that patients receiving less than 100 milligrams per day of aspirin had the lowest rate of life-threatening bleeding and that doses over 100 milligrams were not associated with any additional benefit, but they did carry a higher bleed risk. So overall, there's been a lack of direct head-to-head trials, really comparing that 81 to 325 milligram dose of aspirin, with most of our data coming from meta-analyses or observational data. So Ivy, let's talk about the ADAPTABLE study. The study is entitled Comparative Effectiveness of Aspirin Dosing in Cardiovascular Disease, and it was published in the New England Journal of Medicine in May 2021. And I hope everyone listening to the podcast will also read your commentary and the original research report. We provide a link to the paper on the iFormerX website, but for those in our audience who haven't read the paper yet, Can you give us a brief synopsis of the study methods and its major findings? Of course. So the adaptable trial was a pragmatic design, randomized, open-label study that basically looked at the efficacy and safety of aspirin 81 milligrams compared to the higher dose 325 milligrams daily in patients with established ASCVD. Some of the important exclusion criteria included patients with a recent GI bleed and patients currently on an anticoagulant or ticagalor. The primary efficacy outcome was time to first occurrence of death from any cause, hospitalization from MI, or hospitalization for stroke. And also, the primary safety outcome was hospitalization for major bleeding with an associated blood product transfusion. Further in the trial, at 26 months, there were no significant difference in the primary outcome with about 7.3% of patients in the 81 milligram group and about 7.5% of patients in the 325 milligram group experiencing the primary event. 
In addition, hospitalization rates for a major bleeding were similar between both groups. So overall, the trial concluded that there was no significant differences in cardiovascular events or major bleeding between patients assigned to 81 milligram and those assigned to 325 milligrams of daily aspirin. Now, Ivy, there are a few interesting features of this study that I'd like to explore a bit more. First, This is the first study that I'm aware of to use the National Patient-Centered Clinical Research Network, or PCORnet. What exactly is PCORnet, and who's involved, and who funds it? I had the same exact questions when reading the article for the first time as well. PCORnet is a network comprised of clinical data and patient-powered research networks that collect data from EMRs, from various hospital systems, and even insurance claims. This data is then converted into a standardized data system that can be used for observational studies and pragmatic randomized clinical trials like the one we're discussing today. This helps streamline enrollment, making it easier to identify a large group of of potential participants using low-touch recruitment strategies, and also it reduces the cost of trials too. PCORnet is funded by the Patient-Centered Outcomes Research Institute, which is an independent nonprofit organization whose vision is to improve the quality and relevance of evidence available to help patients, clinicians, insurers, and even policymakers to make better informed health decisions. So Megan, the investigators refer to this study as a, quote, pragmatic control trial. What's the difference between a pragmatic study and the more traditional ways of conducting clinical trials? And what are some of the advantages and potential disadvantages of using a pragmatic study design? One of the main distinguishing features of a pragmatic controlled trial is that it's conducted in real-world clinical practice settings with more of our typical patients. These studies tend to be more generalizable to broader patient populations compared to our traditional trials, mainly because there's less strict inclusion criteria. So they can also highlight how an intervention works across multiple healthcare settings, like in a hospital, smaller clinic, or in a larger physician practice. And pragmatic trials take advantage of integrated healthcare systems so that they can use electronic records, patient reminder systems, and virtual follow-up to help reach a broader patient population, while also making the best use of limited resources. When we think of traditional randomized controlled trials, they do a better job at maximizing internal validity, mainly because they're controlling for as many confounders as possible. But on the flip side, that typically limits the generalizability of those studies. In this particular pragmatic trial, patients were responsible for purchasing their own aspirin dose over the counter. So on the one hand, that does help to reduce trial costs, but that also obviously unblinds the study, so that can introduce some bias. In this study, patients might feel more independent to change their dose since they're purchasing their own medication, and patients in traditional trials are usually given study medication by the research site and followed closely for adherence, which tends to make it less likely that a patient might deviate from the protocol. So Ivy, in pragmatic trials, I know the investigators are not as heavy-handed about controlling all the variables. And uh, there was a high percentage of participants in this study that were assigned to the 325 milligram aspirin group which actually switched over during the study to 81 milligrams. While conversely, a relatively small percentage of those patients who were taking 81 milligrams at baseline switched over 
to taking 325 milligrams. So there's clearly a confounder here that may have impacted the results. Are there other confounders that you're concerned about? Yeah. So when you look at the actual duration of therapy between the two aspirin doses, the number of days exposed to aspirin was lower in the 325 milligram group compared to patients taking 81 milligrams daily. So patients taking the higher dose of 325 were on the drug for about 434 days, which is roughly 1.2 years compared to 650 days with the low dose aspirin, which is about 1.8 years. That's a big difference of about six months. This difference, along with what you mentioned about the high rate of switching to the 81 milligram dose, most likely skewed true treatment effects as well as the safety outcomes. It's also important to note that the safety outcome was limited in the sense of only including patients who were hospitalized for major bleeding associated with a blood transfusion. This is a big safety limitation of the trial because it did not report on minor bleeding rates or additional side effects such as dyspepsia that may be important for patients and providers to know. Lastly, the trial still randomized patients who were on other antiplatelet therapy to either 81 milligrams or 325 milligrams of aspirin, even though, as we know, guidelines recommend using 81 milligrams of aspirin in patients with CAD on DAP therapy due to similar efficacy and lower bleeding rates compared to 325 milligrams. So Megan, what's the bottom line? Did this study put to rest doubts about the most appropriate dose of aspirin for the prevention of recurrent cardiovascular events? Perhaps you believe 81 milligrams should be preferred, but are there times when you'd recommend perhaps a higher dose, either 162 milligrams or 325 milligrams? I do think there are patients who benefit from the higher 325 milligram dosing, you know, especially during an ACS event or an acute stroke, for example. And on the flip side, we do know that there are certain patient groups who we should be putting on the lower 81 milligram dose, mainly patients who are on other blood thinners like a DOAC or patients who are on dual or triple antiplatelet therapy. For the most part, those patients should be receiving a lower dose of aspirin, mainly to help minimize bleeding risk as much as possible. Clinically, I tend to see more patients on the 81 milligram dose of aspirin. Our cardiology practice actually incorporated a safety alert for providers that flags the 325 milligram aspirin dose so that our providers can then evaluate to see if a lower dose of aspirin is warranted. So I don't know that this specific trial gave us much clear resolution, though, since the results were so affected by patients switching from the 325 milligram to the 81 milligram dose of aspirin. Well, Megan, Ivy, I want to thank you both for joining me today to discuss the dosing of aspirin following vascular events or following stenting. Unfortunately, I think the results of the adaptable study still leaves us with some uncertainty. Uh, Well, tell us what you think. When should we be using a lower or higher dose of aspirin? Remember, only iFormRx members can leave comments and use the interactive features on the site. You can become a member of iFormRx. It's free, so sign up today. And by the way, if you are a board-certified ambulatory care pharmacist and would like to earn board recertification and continuing education credit for listening to this podcast, and of course, reading the commentary on the iFormRx website, you can. We've partnered with the American Pharmacists Association to offer this program and many others for BCACP 
recertification credit. So click on that link posted below the commentary on our website. And lastly, I want to say a special thank you to P4 students out there, Caitlin Cawthon, Leanne Mahalik, and Margaret Street, each of whom have written a news story for iFormerX this past year about some breaking news and the impact it has on ambulatory care pharmacy practice. These brief summaries of cutting-edge issues that impact our practice, such as short courses of antibiotics and the long-haul symptoms that some patients experience after being infected with COVID-19, and whether you should be using a SMART or MART approach to your asthma patients, really help our members understand the state of the art and stay up to date and stay current. So, Caitlin, Leanne, Margaret, thanks for contributing to iFormerX, and I hope it won't be the last time. And if you are a student pharmacist and would like to write a newsletter article for iFormerX, reach out to a faculty member at your school who is a member of iFormerX and then send me a proposal. Until next time, this is Stuart Haynes, editor in chief of iFormerX, signing off. Mm-hmm.